And hello, everyone. It's Election Overdose, and I'm sure you're all underdosed because we had to skip last week. But I really hope listeners have not overdosed yet on the campaign because we still have eight and a half weeks to go until Israel's fifth election in just over three years. And we'll need all that time to figure it out. I'm Dalia Shenlin speaking to you from the Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Sadly, even tragically, my co-host Anshul Pfeffer is not here this week, but it's for a good cause. He's on his way to speak at Limud in Melbourne. Aziz, you should go out and listen to him. Although Angel is irreplaceable, we do have a special guest today who is the best person to help digest the specific campaign developments of the last couple of weeks and dive deep into this week's topic, which will be what is happening on the right side of the political map. That is the majority, after all, of the Israeli public. Our guest today is Professor Yossi Shane, who is also a member of Knesset for the party Israel Bitenu. More about him very soon. That's the party founded and led by Avigdor Lieberman. And with that, we have a lot of news to cover. So we'll get right into our news update. Now, since our last show, which was about two weeks ago, we've had two more parties holding their primary contests, and they will be the last parties to hold primaries. That means four parties in total in Israel held primaries, one from the left and one from the right over the last couple of weeks. So Meretz from the left reelected its old new leader, Zahaba Galon, and shuffled its electoral list a little bit. From the right, we had religious Zionism, the party led by Bezalel Smotrich, which held its contest for the list as well. Starting with the left flank, as expected, Zahaba Galon won the leadership after announcing her re-entry into politics back in July. She was the leader of Meretz between 2012 and 2018, then took a break, and now she's back uh, to a lot of excitement, seems, from the left-wing communities. Her main competitor was Yair Golan, a former military figure, deputy chief of staff of the IDF, who has taken firm left positions since then. He won fifth place. Former leader Nitzan Horowitz was bumped down to seventh place. Many think that is not realistic for Meretz. And there's only one Arab on a realistic spot on the list. Yossi, I want to just bring you in. Do you have any thoughts about the contest in Meretz? Is anybody paying attention to what happens in Meretz? I mean, it's getting so few votes. It's probably pulling around five seats these days. Thank God I don't have to deal with Meretz. I have my own things to do. But I uh, obviously I'm reading and I see uh, what is happening there. Uh, I think from uh, my encounter with Meretz uh, members of Knesset, this uh, the 24th Knesset, Meretz have a, uh, has a very uh, difficult, I would say, road to pave. On the one hand, they really don't have any more core issues around which they identify themselves. Secondly, they are automatically have to support the coalition of change, what we call, and the coalition of change, as we have seen before, was all kind of like center-right. So in that respect, from time to time, you had some pronouncements by Meretz members, and you also had like an accident of Meretz uh, with uh, Rinawi Zobi, who was a member of Meretz, but was dissatisfied for whatever reason and decided to vote against the coalition and was one of the key players, in fact, that brought the government down but certainly not the only one. Some would say there were more key figures from Yamina I'm not, itself. I'm not saying no, but, I, but I, I've watched her carefully and I spoke to her because she sits close to me in the Knesset. And um, I don't want to make any judgments here, but certainly it was quite, I would say, strange. Because when I asked her for the first time, why are you voting against? She said, they have not known my name yet, but now they will know. And that was kind of a very personal kind of reaction rather than any ideological she almost adds this kind of visceral 
um, I would say, distaste to, to her Meretz members, which was quite interesting to see. So something went wrong there. Well, she's out now, and Meretz is taking a lot of criticism for having made the decision yes. to have her as part of the party. Um, but also on the left, over the last few weeks, we're seeing another development, which is rather unbearable pressure on Labour and Meretz to merge, including from the Prime Minister Yair Lapid himself and from this very newspaper's editorial page. I should give a disclosure again that I have conducted a survey for the Labour Party in this election campaign. And I'm just wondering... How many Israelis are really paying attention to all of these things on the left? Because the entire camp of the left is so small, and that's why we're going to be talking more about the right. Do you think people are paying attention? First of all, I really don't know. I really don't follow it so closely. This is a great case in point. Yeah. Member of Knesset from uh, a party that was sitting in coalition with the left-wing party says, I don't really follow this stuff. Uh, no, I, I think I, that's representative. I, I, I truly don't. And I, uh, I know, uh, of course, some members of Knesset. I think there is a big question here of identity. Labour Party, which was and still is something trying to present itself as uh, those who inherit Rabin's legacy, are now kind of like put in the same uh, camp with Meretz. Many of them do not like it. Uh, others are kind of like questioning whether they have the right leadership. I see it in the Knesset itself. They had several members of Knesset who were very active, uh, Gilad Kariv. Uh, member of Knesset Wrighton was, but I you didn't see a core. My my my, I, you didn't see a core of a party, and I think this debate with merits: Are you part of this, or are you are you are you identical or not? Who are you? Is a very big question for these parties, and um, especially in a government that represents a very centrist right-wing position. It was always an uncomfortable and a tenuous position for them. Now, on the right, we had some interesting parallel developments with a lot more drama and crisis. We'll start with the primaries in religious Zionism. There were 24,000 eligible party members, and they were happy about their turnout. Nobody challenged Bezalel Smoltrich as the party leader. Uh, the party has six seats in the outgoing Knesset. Polls have shown it doing much better, though, between 9, 10, 11 seats, depending on the other half of the equation. That would be the Kahanist Jewish Power Party, which we will discuss. But in the elections for religious Zionism, uh, the top realistic slots showed an interesting list. There are two different women, including one outspoken settler advocate, Orit Struk, alongside Simcha Rotman, who is the outspoken leader of the anti-judiciary crusade in Israel. Uh, maybe self-anointed, but he has many followers, certainly even among the leadership. Um, what's important about this is the big news, really, that Itamar Ben-Gvir, who had announced not that long ago that he was going to run separately, reached an agreement to remerge with religious Zionism. This agreement was sort of cajoled out of them by Netanyahu, who summoned them and hosted them in Caesarea, where he lives. And the deal was forged, and polls now show them combined winning 11 or even 12 seats. Yossi, what about this merger? What does it mean? Who are these parties? Talk about identity. What do they stand for? And this is still a teaser before we really get deep down into the right-wing side of Israeli politics. These are difficult questions. You know, the, That's the, why I'm the, here. the, the ethos of the right-wing in Israel has been eroded in the in the in the manner of of the way we knew what is uh, right wing. In fact, the very idea that we are right wing, completely right wing, where they say male male, full, no no way, is in fact very surprising because on the one hand they have the Haredi parties, which also are going through a little bit of a crisis this week, a different crisis. But some members of these parties, of course, are anti nationalist and they are even anti-state, and they do, not, they do not really consider the recovery of the ancient homeland and life in Israel as a creed to hold to, but rather they see themselves as part of a coalition 
that represents tradition, that represents some degree of, um, I would say, respect for religion, but also a coalition that they can benefit from economically. And then, of course, there are those, the extreme right in Israel. And that is which parties? Yes, this is Ben Gvir and Smotrich, and many members of the Likud themselves have emerged to be really extreme right wing. What do I mean by extreme right wing? Primarily, I think it's the issue of ownership of nationalism and Zionism, which is not the original Zionism. It's rather a different Zionism. A Zionism which is merged with religiosity and trying there to... There was always a stream of religious Zionism and Zionism. Yeah, but always a small stream. This was a, this was a modern movement. Don't forget, we just marked the anniversary 125 years of Basel and so on. This is something they redefine it. Secondly, they are not any more uh, shy in claiming their antithetical view toward democracy and liberalism in a manner that, of course, one could not even imagine when Begin was there or when the Likud and liberals kind of merged in the late 70s. So uh, we see here some messianic voices who are pushing the uh, right wing into a position where religiosity is much more important, extreme nationalism, hate of Arabs, kind of like as a code that Arabs should be away from any any deal. And uh, these are the people who are now basically, whether Bibi will win or not, in, in their view, uh, I believe he will not. But nevertheless, this is what should give Netanyahu the uh, license to build a government. Keep in mind that all the other right-wing parties of the past have left Netanyahu because of his behavior and the change in the Likud formation and ideology. This includes Gidon Saar. This included... Bennett, of course. Bennett, of course. Included Avigdor Lieberman, my party, Israel Beitenu, and others, other members, key members of these parties who just left and could not see this shift in the uh, orientation of the right wing, what we call the right wing. So I want to get even deeper into that in our real interview. But let me just, uh, since you raised the question of the ultra-Orthodox parties, it is one of the more interesting developments over this last week as well, that there uh, seems to be a serious crisis within Torah Judaism, which is, of course, a one of the many amalgamated parties in Israel, including Degel HaTorah, representing Lithuanian Haredim, and Agudat Yisrael, representing the Hasidim. And they've run together for 30 years or so, and Bibi is very much trying to keep them together as well. But the fear is that if they split, one of them might fall under the the voter threshold of 3.25%. That's a four-seat loss for Netanyahu's block, his block of parties that are loyal to him, makes it much harder for him to reach 61 seats. And as you point out, there are really only four parties in that block who are currently crossing the threshold. It's Shas, it's Torah Judaism, religious Zionism, and Likud. Ayelet Shaked's party, by all polls in recent weeks, has not crossed the electoral threshold. So this is a dicey situation. So before we move on to a deeper interview about the state of the right in Israel, I want to talk about also some of the issues on the agenda this week. Remember issues? Do you think the voters remember issues? Sometimes we wonder because we're so busy talking about the politics of Israeli politics. But there are some very important foreign and domestic policy issues that could matter in the elections if the voters think about them when they go vote. One of the developments on the foreign policy scene is the feverish anticipation that the Biden administration might sign a new agreement with Iran. 
is that good, bad, or ugly for Israel? And unlike during the Netanyahu era, I would say there's actually quite a spirited debate about it here because during the Netanyahu era, it was just across the across the board considered to be a terrible thing. Um, Prime Minister Lapid spoke with the American president, finally demonstrating his acumen on the global stage, getting guy on the phone. Yossi, do you think this issue will have an impact on the elections or look good for Lapid and maybe boost his cachet as a foreign policy leader? I think that... It's very difficult to know what will be the issue eventually in the elections. I think that one thing that we have done very well this week is, first of all, today is September 1st. We have to, we just marked the opening of schools after the looming- We're going to talk about that too. The looming danger of teacher strike. And I think we have made incredible uh, progress in the treatment of teachers and the way the teachers will be compensated in, the re- in, in some structural reforms that we, me as representing the uh, Treasury uh, Secretary uh, Lieberman, uh, is very much interested in. I think this is a key issue. Many people were leery that we will go into a period of strikes. And, maybe, and, maybe I should stop and explain what happened okay. here because we started talking about Iran, but maybe we can get back to Iran. But the question of the strike is directly related to your party. And just to inform anybody who's not paying attention, there has been a nail-biting standoff for for weeks now, some would argue for months, going back to the demands of the Teachers' Federation that teachers have better conditions in Israel. And the finance ministry saying, we can't afford all of these demands. So they've been negotiating very intensely right up until the opening of the school year, which was today. And the teachers are basically threatening to go on strike if there were, a deal was not reached. Uh, your party leader, Avidor Lieberman, is finance minister, and they managed to reach an 11th hour deal just yesterday. I think it was yesterday afternoon when it was announced that a deal was reached. And so their kids started school today. And you visited some schools this morning. So with that background, do you think that will affect the elections? And you can explain what you were starting to say before. I think but I we're th- still going to get back to Iran. At some we, point. We'll go back to Iran, but I want to make First of all, people are concerned. They were concerned about the strike because it would change everything. And I think the the way it was resolved and the way the teachers were compensated and reforms were introduced, even though it was the last minute kind of like deal, uh, really you can hear the sigh of relief. And as you suggested, I just came from the uh, from the Gaza border, seeing thousands of kids going to school today with their parents, with their teachers singing, and and really this was really really very very emotional. And I think this is one thing that Israelis are concerned about: a concern about chaotic situation in terms of labor relations, which we were able to avert. We of course believe that the teachers' strike was averted also because we advanced some very significant reforms, not only to compensate young teachers who will stay with the teaching job for quite some time, but also to have what I will say, instead of centralized kind of control, we are, we kind of like more pluralism in schools. We, are, we, we kind of empowered the principals in the school. We, uh, we kind of highlighted the issue of excellence in the school. We were trying to synchronize vacations of the school with the labor market. And all of these advancements really were quite surprising to many Israelis that we were managed to work out a very respectable deal. And I think that's why very many people are happy this morning. Yes, although your party also threatened to win an injunction from the state against them going on strike. Was it a strong arm tactic? I don't think so. I think it was a very clear message that we cannot allow ourselves to have another strike. Keep in mind that only last year during the coronavirus, we were kind of like in a crisis in the education system. Many educational systems in the world were in crisis, but Israel in particular. And they were trying to impose closures on the schools. 
I was one of those in the uh, uh, Committee on Education who insisted that we open the school, whatever uh, it takes. And indeed, we did open the schools. And it took the school's time to recover from all the sociological and psychological uh, uh, difficulties that kids experienced and for all the structural issues that we have experienced. And now we didn't want to go into any chaotic situation. We have secured stability. And this is something that Israel doesn't know until 2026. For four consecutive years, we'll not have any looming strike in the educational system. And that is a very, it's a very welcoming relief for many parents and for teachers. And I think the, the public at large. So we'll see if the voters remember that when they go to the polls. We Iran, hope, quick, any so. quick thoughts about whether yeah, Yair Lapid has some new cachet about, over this or if it's going to maybe, maybe, maybe your answer is an answer enough. You didn't even really want to spend too much there time is, talking there about is it. A, there is a long discussion here about the Iran deal. We won't have that long discussion. We'll yeah. have a short So, one. But right now, of course, there are some uh, questions very serious questions about the motivation to rush or not to rush to, to close a deal. What is at stake? And we have to be on guard. We are not part of the deal, of course, but we're only watching. And we warned the United States in terms of the, the risks. One of those risks, which, I, which no one talked about, I met yesterday a very high official, American high official, who told me that he was surprised to see that Previous Secretary of State Pompeo is now guarded by six bodyguards from the CIA or wherever they are, and for the uh, because of Iranian threats. And I and he, and and I, I was asking myself, is it possible that the, the Americans are still negotiating with the Iranians that they know that such threats are really real and were run from Tehran? I think this is something which I was very surprised to hear. And I, I was wondering, what is the mood in Washington regarding this deal? Okay, that's with um, with relation to America's decisions. But what about the electoral campaign? Do you think it will play in, or do you think it's just one of those things that's always in the background here? There will doesn't be, really have a huge, huge there influence. Will be, there will be some rhetorical exchanges. We know very well that Netanyahu, when he was the prime minister, basically objected to Obama's policy. When Trump came to power, Trump left the agreement. And, and in 2018, there was basically a boycott of Iran and no more talks about the agreement. On the contrary, let's squeeze Iran. But in my opinion, this was also a strategic mistake on the part of the government. Not that this kind of like exit from the deal was wrong, but the fact is that they thought that Trump will have two terms in office and he will finish the job. And they basically bet on Trump as the, the person who will solve the nuclear threat. I think this is now clear that this was miscalculation. No, apparently Trump miscalculated too. And I think now we had to correct many of these uh, uh, mistakes. We have built very, very, I would say, aggressively the force of Israel to contend with the dangers that were looming since 2018. And we are much better at that and we are continuing to do so. And we are not part of the agreement which we are trying to stop in any case. Okay, so now that we've talked about the news updates, let's go a little bit deeper into our topic. And to do that, I want to give you a little bit more of a detailed introduction to, as I mentioned before, uh, Yossi is a member of Knesset with Israel Bitenu. He's also a member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. He's on the Subcommittee on Intelligence. He's on the Committee of Education and the head of the Knesset Committee for Higher Education. 
He's also a professor of political science at Tel Aviv University. Full disclosure, he was my professor of political science when I was doing my doctoral work there. I took his courses. I've used your research over the years, as has probably half the country who studied politics. So thank you again for being with us. And what I want to talk about now is really go a little bit deeper into the political dynamics in the right wing camp in Israel. Because when I look at the right, and let's just remind people, this is 64 percent of the Jewish population. It's over half of the total Israeli electorate. But I'm not even entirely sure what they all have in common. If you count Ayelet Shaked's Spirit of Zionism Party, there are about seven different parties competing on the right wing of the political map in terms of ideology. They're not all in coalition dynamics together. Does anything unite them? A lot of things unite the right. Depends which right. We are, for example, uh, Victor Lieberman's party, Israel Beitenu. We, we consider ourselves the real right. We are committed to a very nationalist pr- program, but we're also committed to civic freedoms. We're committed to free market economy, all kind of like to uh, a right-wing kind of policies. But there are many other right-wing parties who are also kind of like with a twist, making the right-wing more in tune with religiosity. And religious component is becoming also intertwined with messianic components regarding, let's say, Judea and Samaria, regarding, of course, some solutions vis-a-vis Israel democracy and Israel's legacy of liberalism and of course the very definition of the Jewish state. Keep in mind for example that Smotrich on the extreme right nationalists want to nullify the law of return because the law of return prescribes that everyone who is a Jew by the mere fact that he has some Jewish heritage here or there is allowed to come to Israel and become a citizen and he wants to counsel it because he wants to go back and basically adopt a definition that will be much more religious-oriented in, in, in its scope. And so are also the right-wing religious orthodox parties. Take, for example, Shas. We should say that you're making air quotes while you do Yes, Shas. Shas is a right-wing party by what measure? They have like a party that is committed to ethnicity, what we call Mizrahim in Israel, or Sephardic Jews. These are, these are people who came from North Africa or Arab countries, and they consider themselves as people who have been uh, somewhat pushed to the periphery by the Ashkenazi domination, people who have been used or abused by that. They took on it the religious component and later on took another component, which was a right wing. They started as left wing, in fact. And they took on a gender component, too. They're basically a a male politics party. Always ultra-Orthodox gender component. No recognition of gender equality, no recognition. Right, not to let Torah Judaism off the hook. Oh, yeah, I mean, yes, of course, no recognition of all other Jewish, I would say, streams that are related to the, let's say, the American uh, liberal scene. So is there a right? What do they share in common? Say, there is, it's the idea of using the word right is just coining a term of legitimacy against the left. Uh-huh. which is illegitimate. So their identity is in opposition to the left. It's absolutely in opposition to the left. And secondly, some of some of these parties are against modernity. One has to understand, or partially against modernity. I'll, I'll give you just an example. This week, we had a, a conference convened in Basel where Herzl declared the Jewish state 125 years ago, the vision of a Jewish state. And people went there to mark the state. The ultra-Orthodox parties were absolutely against that. They are against Herzl's vision. Some of their leaders and the rabbis do not accept Hatikva as the hand of the Israeli uh, state. So we are here with groups that are calling themselves right, 
and often kind of like dressing themselves as right wing as if they are committed more loyally, but they do not serve in the army. They are not part and parcel of the of the ethos of Zionism. They are against Zionism as we knew it in modernity. So this is a, a kind of like a, a combination of all kind of voices using the terminology right just to debunk those who are illegitimate on the left. And you also mentioned their challenges to the liberal heritage or, or legacy, which I could challenge myself, but I'm curious how that manifests itself in the parties on the right. Look, it first of all, the manifestation of that primarily is to make a point that they will never sit with Arabs. Because in this coalition, the, the coalition of change that we had just finished its, its, its term early than expected, there was, of course, a very important component of an Arab party, Ram. This was an Arab party that uh, uh, whose leaders, Mansour Abbas, made a declaration that he recognized the Jewish state. He also made a declaration that he is not getting any orders from Sinwar, the, the leader of Hamas, and kind of showed himself, dedicating himself to Israeli issues for Arabs. This was quite a change. And indeed, the government signed a coalition deal with him and he was part of it. Keep in mind that Netanyahu wanted him before, but once he signed with the alternative coalition, he became the nemesis. He became kind of like this, the, the, the rhetorical example of how the right wing sold himself to the left because he's Islamic, uh, uh, an Islamic party. So there's a lot of confusion. People maybe will not understand, but the rhetoric is what really is important. And we are in the era also of Twitter, the era of Facebook, the era of, of all kind of messages sent. And it's a viral aggression. And this is what it's really all about. It's not about reality. It's about make-believe. But I can't forget either that Avigdor Lieberman in 2009, when he really burst out and won 15 seats, yes. his campaign was all about rhetorical attacks on the Arab community in Israel. No loyalty, no citizenship, and that was not just rhetoric because in the 18th Knesset between 2009 and 2013, Lieberman and his party members co-sponsored many bills that were designed to pressure the Arab community. So where does that fit with Lieberman this and was, the party this now was not, This was not rhetoric. This was indeed the, pol the policy. No loyalty, no citizenship. So how is that? How is and that indeed, any different? And from indeed, this, indeed, the, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, just basically uh, uh, allowed that those who are active in terrorist activities were not allowed to keep their citizenship in Israel. This is for the first time it happened. What we have in mind, and we say it completely. I am, for example, a member of Avigdor Lieberman's party. Consider some people in the what we call a meshutefet, the Arab, the other Arab party, who the do joint list. the joint list. Who do not see themselves as Israelis. They, they see themselves representing the Palestinian people as enemies of the Arabs in Israel and enemies of the state. And I consider some of them really dangerous to the state. And when, when, when uh, the leader of the party asks soldiers or police officers to lay their, their, their rifles and not to obey the rules of the state, I consider him basically uh, a threat to the state. So we don't, didn't change our views. What, what, what happened is Mansour Abbas changes views. Mansour Abbas kind of like came with a different ideology, came with a different statement. He didn't see himself first and foremost as a Palestinian, but rather as an Israeli. And he wanted to integrate Arab Israelis in Israel with the, all the, the baggage that comes with it. But also, he said, if we are part and parcel, we are loyal Israelis and we deserve to be treated economically and otherwise with rights. And we never against it. I'm the one who introduced the, a, a new bill to the, to the Knesset regarding the uh, the national law to make a sh change in the national What's law. What's the change you propose? 
the change was proposed that basically it will be in conjunction with the Declaration of Independence and, and, and it, it will include all those who are loyal citizens as part of the state and they will be granted full citizenship and not will be second class kind of like citizenship. Of course, it begins with the Druze who are not part of it and we were very, very, very uh, upset about it. And uh, of course, other Arabs who are participating in the army, taking part in, uh, in, in the Israeli vision of a, a state with a minority. And we should say that the reason why it would be important to refer to the Declaration of Independence is because it's one of the only founding documents of Israel that actually guarantees equality, which the no absence, other laws in Israel in do. In the absence of a written constitution. Or this, any legal guarantee uh, of in, citizen in, equality. In that respect, we know we have some guarantees, of course, and there is a lot of some, debates about it. Uh, we have guarantees, legal guarantees and so on, but also duties in that respect. Right. Let me ask you another question apropos Avigdor Lieberman, because famously, when uh, Yisrael Bitenu and Avigdor Lieberman refused to join Netanyahu's coalition after the April 2019 elections, Netanyahu said one thing very, very fast. He said, you are a left-wing party. I, now, immediately. In general, in Israel, left, right, and center generally refers to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Lieberman is in this strange position of having projected a security hardliner and a sort of militarist approach most of his career. Of course, he was a Netanyahu protege and the head of his uh, chief of staff. But he also sort of supported two states, but he also had this plan for population transfer, which I consider pretty undemocratic. We're, we don't hear much about any of those now. Where does he stand? Lieberman, if you will ask him, I'm sure he will answer that his ideology is based on Herzl and Jabotinsky in that respect, both total commitment to the Jewish state, to Jewish nationalism, and also a total commitment to civic, uh, uh, civic duties and, and rights for minorities. And with regard to the Palestinians, he basically believes that there is really no Palestinian leadership to deal with, and all the Palestinian leadership is, is uh, either debunked because they are not capable of a monopoly over the means of violence, nor do they are interested in getting to any solution. So practically, his decision is we don't talk to them. But when there will be a Palestinian leadership, there does he no, support a two-state solution there is or no, not? I think, I think the idea of if and when and how, these are always kind of like stumbling blocks to discussion. Lieberman is always have been very pragmatic. I'm not saying what will be his view. But certainly, the idea that he should negotiate with someone who is sponsoring terrorism or someone who is paying the, the families of terrorists or someone who is, uh, you know, like aggressively against any, any compromise that was offered by previous prime ministers uh, uh, on the issue of uh, return Palestinians and so on. Lieberman always said that Abu Mazen is not a partner for negotiations. And that puts an end to it. And let's see what will happen in the future. What about you? Do you support two-state separation or the opposite? Whatever the opposite is, one state under somebody's control. Over the years, I've also made a point that the reality that I'm looking into it very closely is dictating my views. I'm not coming with any ideological kind of pronouncements. Two states, one state. I think that what we have is that we don't want to mix with the Arabs one state and create one nation. I don't think it's possible. I think we have a division right now between areas A, B, or C. We also, after the uh, the uh, second intifada, we changed many people's minds and hearts, including my own. Uh, we understand which we have to be incredibly guarded about what we are doing. So I'm a disposition. That's why I joined Avigdor Lieberman. I think I'm a realistic position vis-a-vis. -vis. I don't see any kind of like arrangement with Palestinian leadership that can be uh, uh, maintained uh, for creation of state next to Israel. 
and I don't see any way of mixing the population. So I believe that this situation right now, which is not perhaps ide ideal, but you have to manage it. And I'm for managing the situation, and I've been traveling the land for quite some time, and I don't think there is any other kind of option that I can see how it works. Okay. So now, quick wrap-up wrap up question, because we have to finish up. I mean, Avidor Lumen's party, Yisrael Bitenu, your party, is currently polling at five seats. Very stable. I think the highest they received in the last four election cycles was eight, and that's primarily because it appeals to a limited community of former Soviet immigrants and sometimes in its history has also gone beyond that community. Are you going to be able to break out of being a sectoral party that represents former Soviet immigrants, many of them Russian speaking, uh, and reach out to other communities? I think that, first of all, we are polling much better. Even yesterday, we, we saw the polls. There was I'm going through trends. I look at trends. I never look at one poll. I'll give you one word. Always remember that the, the polls about Lieberman's party, always, always they get two, two seats more than the, the, the polls. So we believe that the campaign is just beginning. Already yesterday, we saw that the, we were polling at six seats and not five. But we, we, we really expect to get much more. I think there were times that Lieberman party got even 15 seats. There were time 11 2009 seats. 2009 when he ran the yes. No Loyalty, No Citizenship and, campaign. And, and lots of things can happen. Certainly we have a base. And our base is of, of former Soviet Jewry or what we call post-Soviet Jewry. And we have amended this base this year. We had this year lots of new immigrants from Ukraine, from the war with Russia, with Russians and Ukrainians. And I, I tell you, we are making so many efforts to bring them in to 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 uh, make their adjustments much easier to to support the the regaining of new language and all of these we are we are a party of immigrants as well and this is a party of immigrants part, partly of course because of the the nature of the party and how it was created but also party of Israelis our ministers you can see Lieberman and then Odet Forer and we have a member of the Druze community we we for example we get more than half of the Druze votes. This, uh, this time around, we will hope so. And other members who are not uh, descendant of Russian or post-Soviet Jewry. So this is the party. Okay, well, we're going to have to wrap up the interview, but thank you very much. And normally, we would now go to our favorite lighthearted section, which is called Party Animal. We like to think of strange, esoteric, curious, and forgotten parties in Israeli history. But we're going to save the special spot for when Angel's back. Having said that, I would like to discuss what I think is one of the most curious and unexpected and esoteric rumors of this week. And that is that Eli Avidar, who used to be in your party, Yossi, might be joining Ra'am. What is that all about? Tell us what that means. He had his own party. It was called Yisrael Chofshit, Free Israel, after splitting with you guys. And decode this for us. First of all, I really don't know. I, you will be surprised. I joined Avigdor Lieberman, but I really never had any discussion with Eli Avidar since I joined. I had seven minutes. You never talked to your own your own colleagues in the party. No, we we joined. As I said, I joined last year. Elia Vidar was in the party, but he was kind of like a man of his own, so to speak, in the in the protest movement. And later on, he immediately kind of like jumped ship when he uh, didn't want to take uh, the seat uh, alongside Avigdor Lieberman in the uh, finance minister's office. So he was not part of the party all year. So I really don't know much. Okay, well, it certainly shakes things up a little bit. That's it for today's Haaretz Election Overdose. Thank you for bearing with us despite Anshul's absence. He'll be back next week. Many thanks to Professor Yossi Shane, who is also a member of Knesset with Israel Bitenu, for joining us. Thank you so much. And thanks to Shania Viram and Amir Faktor. And see you all back here next week, loyal listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Mm -hmm.